Good morning, good morning. So good to see you all. My name is Joe. I'm the associate pastor here at Real Life, and uh, it's my pleasure to be sharing with you. It's a little, little interesting. Usually when I share, um, it's uh, trying to give uh, our lead pastor, Justin, uh, a break from the grind of just week over week teaching. And so um, he's usually gone, either hunting or doing something. So it's a little trippy to be like Justin sitting right there. And uh, um, you don't usually see that dynamic, but... But uh, um, I'm glad to be here with you this morning, and uh, we've been going through uh, a series on and celebrating and recognizing what's called Advent, Advent, as we lead into the, the Christmas season. And uh, Advent simply means uh, arrival, and it's a celebration that Christians have been doing for centuries to prepare hearts and minds for the arrival of Jesus, which we celebrate, and we're going to be celebrating as a church uh, this Friday. Can't wait to, to be worshiping with you uh, this Friday. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but we lead into this, and it's usually a four-week celebration uh, in preparation uh, for uh, Christmas time. And historically, we really don't know when Advent actually started, um, where it began. Uh, the earliest that we can trace it to historically uh, goes back to the third century. And uh, there was a council in the third century, the Council of Saragossa, uh, where bishops got together to talk about a emerging stream of teaching in the Christian movement uh, known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a teaching that uh, basically... Uh, uh, amplified the spiritual in, in people and denied the flesh, uh, didn't recognize the flesh, saw it as evil, and they would teach that Jesus came in spirit and not in flesh. And so this was a teaching that the church had to kind of uh, come against, and so this council uh, convened, and, and they talked in this council, and we have the, the, the notes from it um, historically, and uh, they are encouraging Christians to participate in Advent, and this is the first time Advent's mentioned. Uh, in historical record. Uh, and so historians look back and they say, well, it probably predates that uh, council uh, because they're actually encouraging people to participate in Advent. Why? Because we recognize during this season that, that God came into humanity in flesh and actually dwelt among us. And so it was a way to try to try to support that Jesus actually did come in the flesh and wasn't just a spiritual uh, experience. All that to say, like, uh, there's lots of different ways that the church uh, traditionally has practiced Advent. Um, that incorporate lots of different uh, uh, liturgies and lighting candles and all those uh, different things. And we at Real Life have been working through just the main subjects uh, that are talked about in the four-week period. Uh, Justin's led us through the conversation of hope, faith. Last week, he talked about joy. And this week, I get the, the pleasure to talk about peace. We're going to lean into this idea of peace because the arrival of Jesus is the proclamation of peace on earth. Peace on earth has come with the arrival of Jesus. And we're going to lean into that concept a little bit more. But to, to really think about this word peace, um, it's, it actually comes from a Hebrew word. And even, uh, it's a very popular word, even, even people that don't speak Hebrew or, or don't know anything about the Hebrew language probably know what this word is. The equivalent of this word in, uh, of peace in Hebrew is what? 
Shalom. There you go. See, shalom. So you can speak Hebrew, right? That's really good. Um, it's shalom. Uh, shalom is the word, and uh, that we get the, the word peace. Uh, over 200 times in your um, uh, English translation, this word shalom is translated to peace. It's the, more, the most popular way to translate this word, but a quick word study of shalom, you'll actually find it's a very diverse word. It can mean a number of different things, from well-being to prosperity to wholeness. Um, uh, uh, wholeness and security and there's lots of different ways to translate the singular word shalom into its English equivalent based on how you're using the word. The NIV uh, translation actually uses 70 different English words to communicate the singular word shalom. It's a very diverse word. And one thing I love about this word shalom is that it doesn't simply talk about the, our state of being, of a wellness that I have or a security that I have. Um, it's not just about my well-being, but it's also a relational word. It's a relational word. You see, the Jewish people, even to this day, use this word in relationship. When they say hi to people, they say shalom. When they say goodbye to people, they say shalom. Peace be with you. Shalom. So it's a, it's a word that bookends a relational dynamic. When you walk in the room, shalom. When you leave, shalom. And, and so it's this relational dynamic too. So, so, so this word is like the two sides of the same coin. One is about a, 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 um, a way that I am existing about me, but it's also about others. It's about relationships with others. And there's a definition of this word shalom that I, that I really appreciate, that I came across in reading, um, that I think really um, um, exemplifies what we're talking about this morning. And I want to read to you that definition. I'll have it up on the screen. It says this, shalom implies a state of mind that is satisfied and has relationships which are characterized by harmony. A state of mind uh, that is satisfied and has relationships that are characterized by harmony. I think there's a good working definition for us this morning because it hits on both sides of what this word shalom is actually getting at. The heart of the word is, is about something that's happening in me, but also something that's happening out with others. So the question that we're going to work through is that what does, what does Jesus coming, the arrival of Jesus, have to do with Shalom. And we're going to work through three movements this morning. And the first movement is that we need to see that shalom is the character of the kingdom of God. It's this understanding that shalom is the character of the kingdom of God. When I say the character of the kingdom of God, oftentimes we might think of the kingdom of God, the character of the kingdom of God being love. And I would argue that love is actually an action that when acted out into the world leads to peace should lead to peace. And so the real character of the kingdom of God is actually peace. And uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and we're going to spend time in Luke chapter 2. So if you want to turn there in your phones and in uh, your, your Bibles, um, Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to hang out this morning. But in verse 14 specifically, let me draw out, the angels show up on the scene uh, to the shepherds, and they begin to announce that Jesus has come to the shepherds. And, and then a heavenly host, it says, a, a bunch of angels appear in the sky, and they begin to worship God. And, uh, and one of the statements that they say is is they proclaim that peace has arrived on earth. Peace has arrived on earth. That was the proclamation of the angels to the shepherds, that peace has arrived on earth. Now, if you were a first century person living in a Roman-occupied land, 
and someone were to come to you and say, hey, guess what? Peace on earth has come. Peace on earth has come. You might get a puzzled look, and you might get a response that might say something like, well, what do you mean? Peace has already come to earth. Peace has already come to earth. What do I mean by that? In 63 BCE, a man was born. His name was Octavian. Octavian. He was, um, uh, his great, uh, his great uh, uncle was Julius Caesar. And he began to rule in, uh, in the Roman Empire um, and became an emperor. And in 23 BCE, uh, the Roman Senate gave him the name uh, Augustus which means exalted one. So he then took on um, his great uncle's name, Caesar, and what the Roman Senate conferred on him, Augustus, the exalted one. Caesar, the August, uh, Augustus, or Caesar, the exalted one. And he ruled in the Roman Empire and ushered in a foundation of what's called Proxa Romana, which means Roman peace, that lasted for 200 years. He laid the foundation for peace in the known world for two, that lasted for 200 years, all the way up to Marcus Aurelius in, 160, uh, in the 160s AD. And it was because of the groundwork that he laid. And because of the work that uh, Augustus did, um, it, uh, they, would, they would send out announcements to all the, the lands that they would, they would conquer and they, and they would take over and they would introduce uh, what's called Hellenism to, to any land that they conquer, which is essentially just Greek culture, Greek, uh, Greek language, um, uh, temples and worship. And they would, so they would come in and conquer and introduce Greek culture into that, that context. And then they would announce, they would send proclamations and announcements into the cities um, talking about the great work of Augustus and what he's doing in the world. Fast forward to the eight, late 1800s um, and an excavation that was being done in a city, western Turkey, uh, called Prion. And this was a Roman colonized city of Prion. And they were doing excavation work there. And they were at the, at the area of the marketplace where they were doing work uh, excavating. And they came across a stone tablet they had a bunch of writing in Koine Greek, which is uh, an ancient version of Greek. Um, and uh, they call this the Prion Calendar Inscription. And this is what it looks like. It's kind of hard to tell in this image, um, but this is a, a big stone tablet that has Greek written on it, chiseled, chiseled into it. And they found this in the marketplace, placed up on a wall so that everyone could see it. The Prion Calendar Inscription. This is fascinating. I encourage you to Google it when you get home, those that might be interested in something like that. Um, but this is what it looks like. And I want to read to you a portion of what, what this inscription says to the inhabitants of Prion. And there's a couple things you need to know about this. This, this um, tablet is dated to roughly five to eight years before Jesus' birth before historians say that Jesus would have been born. This, this inscription was put in the city of Prion roughly five to eight years before Jesus' birth, which, which puts it roughly about 50 to 70, depending on when you date the gospel's uh, writings, of when the gospels were actually written. So what we have here is a culturally relevant document indicating what may ha have been the belief systems of the people of the Roman Empire and what they believed about Augustus, or at least what the Roman Empire wanted people to believe about Augustus. 
Here's what it says. And as I read it, I'm not going to have it on the screen, but as I read it, I want you to be listening for key words. Key words that jump out to you that you go, oh, that sounds familiar. Well, that sounds familiar. And keep that in your head, and we're going to unpack that. This is what it says. Since providence, which is the God is what they're talking about, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled, again, the God, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind by sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our own anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, and since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Some key things to draw out of this. Let's look at this. This is an inscription in Priam. And it talks about Augustus. It uses words like, he's a savior for us and those who come after us. That he ends war and arranges all things. So that, that end war is to bring peace, right? And arranging all things is talking about bringing order out of chaos, as they conquered places, they took barbaric places and brought order and civilization and Hellenistic culture to it. He ordered all things. Okay. Um, it talks about his birthday, that he is a god. And at the end it says, and all of these things are good tidings. Another way you can say that in Greek is good news or gospel. This is the gospel. So if I were to re-summarize this, maybe because it's a little wordy, I would summarize this inscription in this way. The inscription is telling the inhabitants of Priam that Augustus' divine birth has come so that he would bring peace and prosperity to the world. And this is the gospel. Sound familiar? Listen to how Mark, the gospel writer, begins his gospel. The beginning of the good news. Again, the word there is gospel. About Jesus, the Messiah. That word Messiah is a loaded word. It means anointed one. And it speaks to the hope of Israel that they had that one day God would send a king, an anointed one, that would bring peace to the people of Israel and order them back into their kingdom and reestablish their kingdom forever. The Messiah is a term to bring order out of chaos, to bring peace to the world. So he says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the anointed one, the son of God. It's as if Mark is telling his audience, hey, you think peace has come to the earth? Let me introduce you to a guy named Jesus. He's going to change your life. You think peace has come. You have a narrative in your brain about the, the, what Augustus has done and brought. But actually, 
let me talk to you about a guy named Jesus. Luke also does the same thing. As he's retelling in his narrative of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds, he's hitting on some of these, these ideas and themes that would have been prevalent culturally in their time. In verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, it starts out as the angels begin to proclaim to the shepherds, it says this, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you gospels that will cause great joy for all the people, for everyone. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who brings peace and order, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. To those who are a part of his kingdom, they find peace. Find peace. We need to, sometimes when we read this stuff, we kind of read it with a light heart to say, oh, the good news of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, and it's like this lofty kind of nice thing. When the gospel writers are penning this, they're committing treason. Because it's a complete affront to what the narrative was of the known world at that time. They're saying that Jesus' arrival is actual the good news of the one who will actually bring peace and order out of chaos. Not Caesar, not Augustus. And that's treason. This, these were powerful words. The gospel writers were literary ninjas being very intentional with everything they wrote. They knew what they were doing. They were saying to the world, you think peace has come, but it hasn't. It's actually come through the person of Jesus. And it's interesting because when you look at these two comparisons of the kingdoms, they couldn't be more different from each other. The Roman Empire, sure, they brought a form of peace, absolutely. But it came through the sword, oppression, slavery, violence, propping themselves up while making others lower. And the message of Jesus is just the flip of that. Where Jesus came to serve, to sacrifice, to lower himself so that we can live and experience life. Just the opposite. And this would have been challenging words for the first readers of the gospels as they sat in their context in first century, wherever they were at, as they sat and listened to a message about the arrival of a new king, a man named Jesus, who through his arrival is ushering peace into the world. Both Augustus and Jesus' arrival are announced through the lens of peace. And it's the defining characteristics claimed through their arrivals and their kingdoms. This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of the writing of the Gospels. These two narratives are strikingly different in as much as we talk about the violence and the oppression that the empire of the Roman Empire brought into the world versus what Jesus brings into the world. And what's striking about this is that who these announcements came to, okay? 
When gospels were sent out by the Roman Empire, they were sent out to prominent locations in prominent cities to people of prominence that could read them and, and celebrate them. And when you contrast that, like unlike the Prion uh, inscription that was in, the, in, in a prominent location in the marketplace in a, in a prominent city, you have the story of the arrival of Jesus being told in a location that's not prominent, in the middle of a field, to people who are not important, like the shepherds. You see, the next movement we need to see here is not only is shalom the characteristic of the kingdom of God, but shalom is the story that God is inviting all of us into. He invites all of us into this because it's striking to us and it would have been striking to the first readers to hear that, wait a minute, this glorious king that's gonna bring peace on earth, they're announcing it in the middle of a field to a bunch of shepherds? Like, and, and for us, we go, well, what's wrong with shepherds? Well, in that social class, shepherds were the lowest of, of the low. They were stinky and, 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 and they hung out with the animals and they were gone. They didn't have good uh, relational dynamics because they were always out in the fields and, and working. Um, they were a working class people. And it was just, they, they were looked down upon in that society, in that cultural context. But it's exactly who the angels in the announcement comes to, the most unlikely people in the most unlikely way. In Luke chapter two, verse eight, it says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about this is a beautiful moment in the writing of the Gospels because at this moment, important things in, in the life of people went to important people. Important announcements went to important people. And all of a sudden now, in an important announcement about a new king, a new peace on earth is being announced to not important people. Wait a minute. This announcement is for everyone. Everyone. And you see, the thing that we should think about is that the moment you think you're not good enough, the moment you think you're not spiritual enough, educated enough, rich enough, important enough for God to use you, it's in precisely that moment that God smiles and says, you're exactly the person I'm looking for. You're exactly the person I'm looking for. And this is, a, this is a narrative that's played out all throughout Scripture. When you, when you examine and contrast the, the stories of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth versus Mary and Joseph, you have this contrast happening where Zechariah is a, is a priest uh, working at the temple in the city of Jerusalem. He is a, one of the most important jobs in Israel, working at one of the most important locations, working at one of the most important cities in all of Israel. And the angel appears proclaiming that they're going to have a son, John the Baptist. And Zachariah, someone that should have known, that should have believed, that should believe in the miraculous and, and the movement of God, begins to doubt and the angel strikes him mute. You contrast that to Mary. Mary's from Nazareth, the most unimportant city, right? It's even a joke in the New Testaments when they say, when they're talking about Jesus and they go, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Like it's an unimportant city, nowhere on the map, nobody cares about it, and you have this teenage girl that has no value, no importance to the community, no voice. She's just this girl, and the angel shows up and proclaims, and she believes. This is a beautiful picture of what God's doing because oftentimes it's the people that think they have it all together that God can't seem to use. But it's the people that don't know what they're doing and don't have it figured out that God says, I'm ready. And we just go, yeah, sure, because I don't got anything. You know, like it's this, it's this willingness, this brokenness that who am I that God would use me? And God says, I want to use you. And it's those people he's pursuing. Oftentimes the ones that have it figured out, that have all the answers, that know everything about it, it's like, there's a wall sometimes and I wonder in that story of Zachariah and Mary you get a little picture of that the guy that should have been the most willing to go yeah I'm in Lord doubted the person that was the most unlikely in the most unlikely location was the one that was going hey I'm willing to do anything God here I am here I am you look at the stories of the resurrection God using unlikely people who were the first to witness the resurrection if you remember the story, it's women. It's women. Who were the first to actually testify to other people that Jesus is resurrected? It was women. It was women. Why is that important? Well, because the ancient uh, historian Josephus tells us about the culture at that time, and he writes about how women at that time did not even have an ability to testify for themselves in courts. Their voice didn't matter. They couldn't even be in court and testify on their own behalf. And yet, God chooses the women to be the first witnesses and the first pro proclaimers to testify about the risen Lord. God uses unlikely people in unlikely places to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And that should inspire and encourage us that I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to know all the intricacies of all the little things to be used by God. God's going, I don't care about that. Are you available? But God, I don't, I don't know my, okay, we can worry. Are you available? I want to use you. I want to use you. And that's the story of the Bible. You look through, look through the, the, the history of the Bible and you can go down the line of all these heroes of the faith. Abraham, good guy, bad guy. Well, it depends. It wasn't, you know, Moses, good guy, bad guy. Oh, Moses was great. Well, yeah, he was a murderer too, right? You just go down the line. God uses unlikely people and that should give confidence to all of us just like it did the shepherds. God wants to use you. He wants to invite you into the story of Shalom. He wants to invite you in. God is inviting you into peace and to proclaim peace. Shalom is the good news our neighbors need to hear. Peace is what this world needs. And what I, and, and what I watch and I talk to people, peace is actually what we're longing for. Longing for peace. There is so much devastation hurt and pain people are longing and crying out for peace this is what our neighbors need and God is inviting you into not simply having peace but proclaiming peace remember it's both about me but also about others what's happening in me and others it says this in verse 16 
So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. They spread the word, what the angels had told them. They spread that word to people all around. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. God used unlikely people in an unlikely place to do an amazing proclamation of what God was doing in the world and the people were amazed. The world desperately needs to hear that shalom has come and you can experience it through the person of Jesus. They were amazed. They were amazed. What about shalom is amazing? What about how could we uh, uh, capture the essence of this idea of what shalom does to us and why the world would long for it? I love this quote by Nathan Hunt, who's a, a writer and professor. And, and this quote, I think, captures as he's talking about what shalom is. He says it this way. It is the raw vulnerability of finally knowing and being known. It is tear-filled laughter. It is being all together home and together in love and whole, joined in intimacy with all without barrier, breakdown, violence, or shame. It is to behold the terrifying presence of God and to be swept up breathtakingly as his beloved. That's shalom. The beauty of that that our world desperately needs to hear and God wants to use you to proclaim shalom. Peace has come through the person of Jesus. And don't get me wrong, this isn't about some utopia of this fanciful idea where, where there's no differences or conflict or struggle in our lives. Because peace like Justin shared last week, like, is, is a lot like joy. In the sense, it's not about nothing bad happening in your life. Like if, if, if bad things are happening, I can't have peace, right? So it's like same thing with joy. Like joy is about something more, something deeper that's going on inside of you. It's a real sense of wholeness and calmness in the midst of the chaos. As, as, as the chaos swirls in around you and life gets difficult, and hard to move through. Peace is that anchor you hold on to that no matter what happens in your life, you have one that will never leave you, that will never forsake you, that will never abandon you. His title is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That gives us hope that no matter what we face in life, God never leaves you. He never leaves you. Peace isn't about perfection it's about centering ourselves in the one who never fails us and letting that lead our lives it's aligning our hope our faith and our joy to the one who's lord of it all it's about being swept up into his life-giving love-filling life-changing presence and walking in that every single day shalom we are to be known by and to offer to the world shalom. As I wrap up this morning, there are some thoughts I want to leave you with. And as we get into this challenge, um, I want to revisit the definition that we started out with at the beginning. The definition says that shalom implies a state of mind that is satisfied 
and has relationships which are characterized by harmony. The first question I want us to wrestle with this morning, is there peace in your life? Are you satisfied? Do you find yourself in a constant state of flux and disarray and chaos? Not knowing what to do next or where to turn. Do you have peace? And if not, may I offer to you this morning to settle into the reality that Jesus is Lord of it all and it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. But when Emmanuel is with you, it's going to be okay. You can have peace. Do you have that? I would argue that if you're living in a state of flux and chaos and you're not sure what that next step looks like, let me offer this. Maybe this week, every day this week, when you wake up and get up and you, start, you begin to start your day, I'll challenge you with this. Take 30 seconds. Stop. Jesus, I invite you to walk with me today. And then begin your day. I invite you to breathe. Take a minute. And then invite Jesus to walk with you through the day. It's a good place to start. It's going to be okay. God, you are with me. The second thing I want to ask, and this one's a little bit more difficult because the nuance in, in, in every situation is different, but I, but I have to ask it because we're, we're talking about shalom. Are your relationships at peace? Are your relationships in peace? No doubt this is complicated for some of you because of the hurt that exists and the pain that's been felt from relationships. And the idea of being at peace in those relationships is something that makes us uncomfortable because we're not ready to go there maybe. May I just challenge you this morning to attempt to pursue peace in those relationships. Just attempt it. And I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know what that's going to uncover and I'm no, I don't know what that's going to reveal. All I know is that God desires for us shalom. And it's not about simply a state of being. It's also about my relationships. And so I can't just sit back and go, God, give me shalom in my own life and forget the shalom he, he desires for relationships. It's two sides of the same coin. So we have to at least entertain the idea that if we want shalom in our lives, we have to pursue relational peace as well. So what does that look like for you? And this isn't about how they're going to respond. I'm just asking that you would pursue peace. I don't know how they're going to respond. Right? There's a part that I play. There's a part that the other person plays. And there's a part that God plays. And I will never become more frustrated in life than when I try to play other people's parts. 
So I can only do me. Are you going to choose to pursue peace in your relationships? Jesus is inviting us into peace with himself and to others. Kind of sounds like another commandment Jesus talked about. Love God, love others. Peace with God, peace with others. And can I just say, this is the good news. This is the gospel. The real gospel of the Lord Jesus. As we prepare for communion, to take communion this morning, I want us to sit on those ideas and wrestle with those thoughts. I want to give you a moment to to contemplate what this looks like in your life. Do you need to have find peace and invite Jesus to, to fully be Lord over all parts of your life? Are you holding on to the other kingdoms that exist? Have you bought into the other kingdom? Do you believe the other kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the prosperity of prominence, of influence is going to be the thing that gives you peace or will you believe that it is Jesus and full surrender to his lordship in your life that will actually bring you peace do you have a lack of peace with your relationships and do you need to consider what it looks like to pursue peace with those people I invite you to sit on those thoughts and let God work on your hearts just for a few minutes before we take communion would you do that